0: Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer.
1: Hey, Eck. I am Mariah Rose.
0: That's not a thing. You can't <laughs> make that a thing. Okay, whatever. You are listening to a podcast about the 80s, and thank you to everybody who has been listening, and thanks to all our new listeners. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm... Um, I guess it's a special one. We'll, we'll find out. I don't know. It's probably a frustrating one for our longtime <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Anticlimactic. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, thanks for joining us this week. I hope you guys had a fun uh, Halloween, as weird as it was.
1: Today, if you're listening to in real time, is Election Day. I hope you have already voted. If not, you should probably do that today. Also,
0: when you're feeling really sad and depressed about today, um, And you're nervous. Just listen to us. This is what we're here for. We'll
1: suck the anxiety out. We'll
0: take you to that tropical island for an hour.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you'll be Jimmy Buffett living his best life. That's
0: right. Pina (laughs) Colada Berg. Also, if you do like this show and you want to hear more, we do, as we've mentioned now, we have a Patreon. That is at patreon.com slash lasergraves. And for those of you who have already become patrons, great. Um, You'll be excited to know that starting this month, we have all new episodes coming out. So next Friday will be the first new one of Mariah's show, Rapid Fire. Mm -hmm. And the following week on Friday will be the new Chill Factor. I hope you guys enjoyed the first one on the music of John Carpenter. And then the final Friday of the month will be our next time travel episode. Yeah. So if you haven't become a patron yet, uh, we do encourage that and you'll unlock the previous month. You get access to everything we've already done. Mm Mm-hmm. As well as um, prepping for this week, or thanks, for this month.
1: Yeah, thanks to all of you who are already patrons. Um, if you need a little encouragement, I want you to know that Eric spends so very many hours editing. <laughs> uh, it's a little uh, tip of the hat to him, and it's very little money. We've, If you check it out, we've rated it in Dancing Granny video amounts. So. That's right, yep. So you can choose your Dancing Granny's entry level.
0: And the reason why we did that is because no matter how many dancing grannies VHS tapes you have, they're all worth it.
1: And there is always... You can always afford one more.
0: Okay. Well, (laughs) anyway, so um, check out of the politics for right now and Mm -hmm. for an hour, go on a journey with us.
1: You got thrift store finds this week? I have a secondhand find. Yes. That works. And it is a pair of Howling Coyote earrings. Really? Yeah. Do they have bandanas? So they're... Yes, of course. Okay. And it's next to a cactus, and there's, like, a moon and a cliff. Whoa. It's all on metal. They're super cool, but we live in New Mexico, and I was like, I have to just embrace it. I have to become New Mexican. You do. Like, if you
0: move to Texas, you have to have cowboy boot earrings.
1: And a huge belt buckle.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. And
1: some, like, uh, like rhinestones on the butt pockets yep. of your pants. Yeah, there's
0: plenty of that here, too. You know what? We've been really bad. Sorry to everybody who follows our, our Instagram page. We used to be really good about posting our thrift store finds and our oh. stories, and we suck at that now, but I'm going to say your coyote earrings, that's a good way to get back in. Le- so.
1: Yeah. Okay. okay lead, a- lead us back in. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. what, did, what did you find?
0: I, I found a few tapes this week, actually. It was pretty nice. I found a replacement for the Dolph Lundgren film, I Come in Peace. I had just traded my copy off to my friend Eddie because he was really wanting it. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then I seriously, the day I shipped it to him, found another copy, which is funny. Those are the only two copies I've ever found. Weird. I found a key copy of Young Frankenstein, and I was pretty happy about that.
1: What's a key copy?
0: Uh, Key Video. It's a distribution company. But it's the one that uh, Phantom of Paradise. It's got those rainbow stripes on the spine. yeah. It's just uh, also shock therapy is that way. We've got a bunch, but
1: oh, I thought it meant like it was a special like.
0: What kind of is it's? They're they're cool. I edition. mean, they did a lot of crap films, but the the ones that they did that were really cool, like Better Off Dead, The Key Copy is like the one you want, or Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. So. Okay. I thought, well, finding a young Frankenstein—that's pretty cool. I'll keep oh, that yeah. one.
1: That was the one my dad introduced yeah, me to I at a very it. young age.
0: Yeah, I thought this was more a nostalgic tape for you, so oh, I, I you're grabbed sweet. it. And then the one I did want to talk about was I found a um, Apex film called *Immortal Combat*, not *Mortal Combat*, oh. starring Rowdy Roddy Piper. What? And the premise of this is that. Some fighters and tough guys get summoned to a mysterious island to fight immortal ninjas Mm. with superpowers. Mm -hmm. Sound similar?
1: Yeah, it sounds a little familiar.
0: It was really funny. Uh, It wasn't as over the top as I was hoping. I don't think it's a coincidence that they called a movie Immortal Combat." Okay. All right. Anyway, I found that. It was fun.
1: I'm glad you you watched it, Yeah, and I'm also very glad you didn't ask me to watch it with you.
0: You're lucky it wasn't 80s, honey. Uh,
1: yeah, that's true. I'm okay. very lucky.
0: You guys know. You saw the title. It's no surprise. Yeah, we're doing it this week. This is not a prank. Um, okay. First-time listeners, you're not going to get this. Long-time listeners, kind of apologize, kind of don't. I think it's funny. Yeah. We started an intentionally started a joke at the beginning of last January.
1: Was it intentional? I think it was just like...
0: No, it was totally intentional. Okay. I remember us thinking, wouldn't that be funny if, at the end of almost every episode, we said, maybe we'll do Golden Child next week after we got through our hundredth Which was going to be the golden child as a reward.
1: (laughs) Which makes so much sense.
0: We were like, well, we didn't do it. Maybe we should just reward people with Mm -hmm. the golden child. So that's why we're doing it. This joke, inside joke between us that we thought was hilarious and nobody else did, Mm -hmm. has dragged on for 11 months now.
1: It was episode 58. You actually made me go back and hunt with you for it. And you just laughed at what a dork I am the whole time. It was
0: good. (laughs) Episode 58. And we are now on episode 102. That's how long we've been stretching this golden child joke out. That's a
1: long time.
0: But that being said, we actually had plans to do the movie Heathers with uh, Winona Ryder and um, what's his face? Cutie McGee.
1: Oh, are you talking about Christian Slater? Christian are you Slater. calling Christian Slater Cutie McKee? during Heather's era? For sure, he was gleaming
0: the cube era. Oh, um,
1: this is later, isn't it? No,
0: the same time.
1: Whatever. This Let's, is
0: before interview with a vampire.
1: You know, it'd be hilarious as if we labeled this the Golden Child and then just started launching into Heather's. Heather's. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, anyway, so but we're we'll, not. You'll have to wait till next week on that one because we are going to do it. Let's do it. Let's commit before we back out.
1: Here we are
0: The Golden Child, 1986. When was the first time you saw this? This Um, one you grew up on or saw it way late?
1: I think I saw it with you. Oh, really? That's not a surprise. No. I don't think I had seen it before then. It just, I mean, I knew it existed, but I I wasn't an Eddie Murphy fan. His laugh was a little too much for me.
0: What, this? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like a radio show right now. We got this thing down. I can do it anytime I want. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and you will. (sighs) Anyway. Oh, that's funny. Well, I grew up on this, obviously. Yeah, you did. I loved this film. It was the kind of dollar store version of the better film that we'll talk about later, but I still loved it. I wasn't, this is weird. I wasn't a huge Eddie Murphy fan as much as I was a huge fan of Eddie Murphy in The Golden Child, which Mm. is going to confuse many, many people because The Golden Child is not his strongest outing. But this is the way it is. It's kind of like House 2 or things like that. If you didn't see it, Or Labyrinth, those kind of films. If you didn't see it when it came out and you watched it religiously as a kid, Goonies is another one. Mm -hmm. You're going to watch it now for the first time and go, okay, yeah, sure, that was kind of fun. But you won't have the same nostalgic attachment.
1: Yeah, the power of nostalgia is strong.
0: And this one is one of those. The people who do like The Golden Child, I will guarantee you, it's because they saw it when they were younger and they have a good memory of it.
1: I don't know. I mean, I saw it a little later, and I still love it. And I I mean, I guess if you just really force yourself to keep watching it every few years, <laughs> eventually you will become nostalgic about anything.
0: It gets so much universal hate, or at least it did. I think people have eased up a little bit, but it's really not warranted. And we'll talk about that as time goes on. It's It's not a bad movie. I just think that you can't follow up any, the the greatest success of your entire career with anything without it being criticized. And I think that's, that's the problem is anything, any record, any book, any Mm -hmm. movie that comes after your biggest success is going to get criticized.
1: Yeah. The pressure is really intense to, to build upon success. Like it's a ladder to eternity, but you're gonna have bumps in the road,
0: and this was very upfront, and and people were very self aware of this when Eddie Murphy signed on. Was mm-hmm. the pressure to follow up? We'll save it, but yeah. that's not that that it's not like um, that speculation afterwards. That was very much present as this was being made. Was mm-hmm. Paramount thought we have to you Build. know we have yeah. to replicate the success we've had, which yeah. was ridiculous,
1: although. Both Eddie Murphy and Charles Dance, who are in this film, uh, really panned it at some point in the film, oh, yeah, like after sure. it was made. So that that doesn't help when you have the leads dissing on it. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't help with the legacy. But I, I think that enough time has passed that people just kind of see it for what it is and appreciate it. Yeah, this film is fun.
0: If you don't like it, that's fine. But I, I mean, it really is just a fun little 80s film and... It tried hard. and some areas, it it does succeed. Some areas, it falls short. Mm -hmm. Uh, It also is going to get compared naturally to another film. But let's talk about kind of how this came to be a little bit before we launch into it. It was directed by Michael Ritchie, who some people would know from, like, Fletch was a big one. Mm -hmm. Bad News Bears before that was his big one.
1: I've only watched Fletch once, and I never watched Bad News Bears
0: the other one that he did, which is uncredited, surprised me. And this one also gets a ton of hate. Like this mm-hmm. is a divisive film, is the horror comedy student bodies, which Whoa! we own. I have mm-hmm. the VHS sitting right there. I actually like the film and I like it. Maybe I should save it until we cover it. But I like it because it was one of the earliest entries of horror comedy. And it came out when what it was parroting was at its height, mm-hmm. at the moment, a mm-hmm. slasher. And I thought that took a lot of courage. So that's why I've kind of always given student bodies a pass, is I felt like it was an ambitious uh, project. Okay. But apparently he directed this, but he's uncredited. That really surprised me. That's
1: weird that you wouldn't credit a director. Well,
0: no, it's that's not the case. That could also ask to be uncredited. That happens a lot.
1: Really? They're just like, take my name off of the... <laughs> Yeah, we've had that happen in a few previous episodes.
0: There's actually a name that goes with it, but we are not going to tell you. You're going to have to listen to every single episode we've ever done to discover which one that was.
1: Did they... (laughs) Yep, get started after this. (laughs) Did they give a false name for student bodies then?
0: I don't know. I didn't even look that up. I was just surprised to see that. And then this was written by Dennis Feldman, whose big claim to fame... The Species franchise.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) For some weird reason, we have watched all of them.
0: I like them. I think they're fun. They're just, you know what you're getting into when you watch it.
1: I think that the key is that we were dating when it came out, uh, like when the first Species came out, and we saw it in the theater, I believe, right?
0: I think we did.
1: And I, I, feel, I feel like we did. But I I think that that's why. It was like we had committed to watching it when yeah. really it was just like the $2 Tuesday thing we yeah. did. Yeah. But we were so young and in love that it was like a good memory and we just continued on through the franchise.
0: <laughs> yeah. For better or for worse. <laughs> well, anyway, so that's kind of who got this this ball rolling. We'll sprinkle some other people throughout as we go. but. Mm-hmm. But that's that's how this got started. Now, the thing that we have to discuss right up front, and this can't be a fun fact because it's pretty well known. I, well, I guess nobody really looks into trivia of Goldchild, Child. But what? if you did, this would be one of the big things is what we've touched on already is this came out in 1986. Another huge film and one of my all-time favorites that came out in 1986 uh-huh. is Big Trouble in Little China.
1: You are bonkers for Big Trouble it's in Little China. It's definitely one
0: of my all-time favorite films. And if you have seen both of these films, and if you've seen them together recently, mm. you will see that there is a ton of crossover between cast in this. Yeah. Especially, not like bit parts, but major parts, which made me wonder, was there some connection? Mm-hmm. Did John Carpenter have a connection to this in some way? Now, I don't think that had an impact on how this was cast. But yes, there was a massive connection to John Carpenter because he was the one that was offered to direct this first. Mm -hmm. He read the script and he said, it's a fun script. Uh, I would jump at the opportunity to work with Eddie Murphy because that's gold. However... I've got this other one, Big Trouble in Little China, with Kurt Russell, my boy.
1: Interesting. And actually, did you know that Eddie Murphy was not originally intended to be the lead?
0: (laughs) I did. Did you know who was the original?
1: Mel Gibson.
0: Mel Gibson. And that's going to be interesting because Dennis Feldman wrote the original script as just an action adventure. Mm Mm-hmm. And when Mel Gibson did not get cast and it went to Eddie Murphy, mm-hmm. it became a comedy.
1: Well, they were building on his success uh, from his previous work. And so they were like, oh, well, he's a comedian. We have to, you yep. know, really build on that. Obviously, he'd become well known for Beverly Hills Cop.
0: Yeah, that was uh, that international was
1: powerhouse. Yep.
0: Yeah. So that... Is interesting and and that'll play into the narrative later. Is that this was not written as a comedy, and that's another reason why I don't think I accept a lot of the criticism. Is because a lot of the criticism is it's not funny, as mm-hmm. not as funny as it could be for an Eddie Murphy movie. Eddie Murphy intentionally passed on a, just an, a ridiculous amount of scripts after Beverly Hills Cop. Really. Because he was so stressed out. And I, I read a or I saw an interview on Letterman where he talked about this in 86 promoting this film. He had so much pressure after Beverly Hills Cup. I mean, that thing made like 280 million or something like that. I mean, it was ridiculous.
1: Oh, and that's an 80s money. That he knew the pressure
0: for him to follow that up was so immense that he, he just panicked. And that's why he took a year off yeah to pursue a musical career which i am so happy he did oh, because that's an 85 when we got the single one of my favorite 45s that we own in our collection <laughs> eddie murphy's party all the time yeah here you go I just, if, if I could have figured out any other way to work that into the previous 101 episodes, I would have. But I did it.
1: Here, this was your moment. This was your golden opportunity. <laughs>
0: I love, <laughs> love that song. That's what he was doing in 85, basically avoiding trying to take on another film. And he just kept on passing roll after roll after yeah. roll. But he saw this script. And saw it as something different from Mm -hmm. 48 Hours, Beverly Hills Cop, Trading Places. This was the very first non-R-rated film that he had done. And that's important to know because the hate put on Eddie Murphy for not being as funny in this film. It wasn't supposed to be a comedy. It just got thrust into being a comedy where he was told to basically like improv... A lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think when you take an action adventure film and then all of a sudden on the spot, switch it to be a comedy, it's going to be a mess.
1: Yeah, that's very weird. It's very weird. And I have a question, and maybe you do or do not know the answer to this, but was Big Trouble in Little China a Paramount picture as well?
0: No, it wasn't. However, John Carpenter was aware of the script because he had read it, Uh knew it was in production. And knew that Eddie Murphy was the lead and intentionally changed the timeline to rush through production to get it out four to five or f- I think five to six months earlier. Oh. Because he knew he would just be clobbered in the box office. Yeah. Which we'll talk about the box office at the end, but that was absolutely true on John Carpenter's end. He knew... Was, that would happen. Yeah, it's good
1: insight. And Even he though knew Kurt that they Russell. would
0: compete, and so he brought it out in the summer. It was it was like a July Fourth blockbuster or
1: uh.
0: whatever, and it did not. It it would have just been swallowed up entirely. So yeah,
1: I can't imagine yeah. these two going head to head. Very interesting. It's really weird too because it makes me feel empathy for Eddie Murphy, who is just trying to do something different.
0: Exactly.
1: We to have this like thing that we do where we choose a person that we like and we like this one thing that we do and we are rigidly unwilling to let them do anything else it's so unfair Mm -hmm. and i mean i I get it you know the average person just says ah you do that thing that makes me laugh in this way just continue to do that Mm -hmm. so i understand that especially through like a production company these people become commodities but what a bummer. I would have loved to see him, like, try something different at this point. Can, can you imagine that that would have probably just changed the trajectory of his career? And, like, Charles Dance, who's a pretty serious actor, he had already, I believe, signed on before Eddie Murphy. So what a bummer, too, for everybody who had agreed on this original script to see these changes where they thought they were making something serious. And, oh, now yeah. it's funny? Okay.
0: Yeah, it is really interesting to think about. And just the idea, like you said, the pressure of when comedians try and switch careers, you know, uh, Jim Carrey does the Truman Show or something like that. Like Mm -hmm. they try and be a little bit more serious. And sometimes we're able to accept it and sometimes we're not. I read quite a few reviews, critics reviews of this from 86 because Mm -hmm. Eddie Murphy, as you were saying, earlier really ripped on this, saying it just wasn't the film we thought we were going to get. He didn't point any blame, which was smart. And he said that. I'm not going to point blame. It was just basically a, a whole series of events that led to this not being the film that anybody thought it was going to be. Sure. And he really ripped on the critics hating his performance. But you know what? I read a lot of, of actual reviews from the time, and most of them were pretty positive on Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Yeah. A couple though, and I'm this is as artists we do this, you get you know 10 good reviews and one bad one and and the one bad one is the one that you read and hold on to forever.
1: Yeah, it worms its way. He your He did brain. get a
0: couple though that basically said that this is the beginning of the era of Eddie Murphy giving up and just phoning it in, like realizing oh. that he could just do very minimal effort and still have a blockbuster. What I will say in his defense of this, is regardless of the quality of his films after this, I don't think this script asked or needed him to be over-the-top funny. I think he just needed to be a smartass. He needed to be yeah. condescending. He needed to make fun of people, whatever, because he was just this arrogant kind of cocky character that could be funny at times. But I think if he tried to pull you know, a full comedy act the whole time, like a Robin Williams, it would have just been really overwhelming and wouldn't allow the story to just move forward. And so yeah. I actually like the subdued Eddie Murphy in this. Yeah, well, it works for me. It
1: also gives the other actors room to breathe. Yeah. So he plays our lead character who has the inexplicable name of Chandler Gerald. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I, I no comments. I I don't know what to say about it. Well, I think Chandler was
0: the original name in the original script, if I remember correctly. And he's this guy whose job is to find missing children.
1: Yeah, like he works with the police. Um, And obviously he's played by Eddie Murphy, Murphy, whose career everybody knows. I'm certainly not going to run through it. If you don't know who Eddie Murphy is, you can go to IMDb and search it.
0: Well, this is... Early, though. So here's what's crazy about Eddie Murphy, and to add to the pressure, is he was only 25 when this was filmed.
1: He had done SNL. Well,
0: he had... Yeah. And then he did 48 Hours Mm in 82 with Walter Hill, who's an awesome director. He did uh, Trading Places with John Landis in 83, Mm -hmm. and then 84 is when he did Beverly Hills Cop, which was just, I mean, a massive hit. And basically, everybody around him at the time was like, Eddie Murphy is... Is the hottest star right now in Hollywood, and right. so that's that's leading up to who we're dealing with right now. Is like the yeah. height. I would say this is literally the height of his fame. I can't imagine a time that he was not more hot to take on yeah. a new film. And
1: like just to give you a little perspective, so he's in his early twenties. That's bonkers to, like, have that much money at your disposal and that <laughs> yeah. much power. But he did. He wasn't, like, super educated. He'd gone to school. It kind of sounded like he had mediocre grades because he was just a funny guy. And his father had been, like, a, you know, stand-up comedian, but just casually. And he just kind of started doing that. And it just took off for him, like he'd been the funny guy. And so from being a teenager to what... 5 years later he is he has a, a fame and wealth that you can't quantify that the yeah. average person cannot imagine the pressure on that man i can't begin to fathom i just it, it boggles the mind he's a
0: very interesting person if you watch interviews or read interviews from him during this time 86 85 he is is pretty private, and I think he was very sensitive to criticism. Mm. And I think he took this one was was really the big blow to his ego because. Well, had he
1: had any real criticism?
0: Not really to this extent. Not not like this, where people's expectations now of of Eddie Murphy, the brand of Eddie mm-hmm. Murphy, uh, were so high that he really he didn't handle this well. And I think this probably was hard to recover from. He handled it relatively well, though, as best he could as a twenty, twenty five, twenty six 25, mm-hmm. 26 year old. You know, he just tried to keep moving forward and say, you know, he often talked about how critics only look for things that you could do better, mm-hmm. but that his audience is his true critics and the numbers are still there at the box office. Yeah. So, you know, take it or leave it at that.
1: Well, as as an artist and I, I know you can can agree to this. Uh, we don't like critics. It's it's great to get critical feedback if it's helpful or useful, but especially in the film industry, critics just make a name for themselves by being critical without any real <laughs> goal of helping somebody to grow. Yeah. And I think that's a, really a garbage job. I'm sorry if you're a critic and you love your job, but it just seems very mean-spirited, and I, I don't know. I don't like that. But that's neither here nor there. Let's get back to Chandler J
0: Well, that's Eddie Murphy, and we don't. this isn't an Eddie Murphy episode. However, I don't know how many Eddie, other Eddie Murphy movies we'll ever do, so it was worth talking a little bit about his sure. career. The other main lead that we get is introduced right away to uh, Charlotte Lewis.
1: Yes, so she plays the character Key Nang. Uh, she's British. <laughs> yeah. She's a British actress, as you can tell from her accent. She was 18 when she filmed this movie, which is incredibly young to have something this high profile. I was wondering about her ancestry, like where she comes from. And she has a really interesting heritage. She is British- chilean and iraqi in descent
0: but she's playing a tibetan yes that's classic 80s hollywood
1: yeah absolutely (laughs) oh gosh and interestingly this was just kind of a side note but something that i really admired her for she was assaulted by roman polanski when she was 16 that's not what i admire but she actually publicly denounced Roman Polanski well before the Me Too movement. She like really came out and outed him
0: because that was her first big break, and that mm-hmm. was the same year this came out. Yeah, was Roman she didn't Polanski's... do it at the same time. Yeah, but this was uh, Pirates. His film Pirates had come out, and that was her big claim to fame. That mm-hmm. got her this role it was basically, yep. I think, like five hundred people auditioned for this role, and she got it. But I, and I really, really like her performance in this. She's her great. ability to counteract Eddie Murphy and just yeah. being straight-faced the whole time mm-hmm. and subtle, but she's also this badass that knows, like, kung fu and all this.
1: She I, seems so mature, too. For yeah, 18, yeah, I was shocked when yeah. I read that.
0: Yeah, I liked it. I thought she was really good in this.
1: So Chandler Gerald, is, he's a finder of lost children. We learn that's his primary goal. And she sees him on TV and uses him to or she approaches him to help her find this stolen child Mm -hmm. who is the golden child. And he doesn't really have her belief system and and doesn't understand what she's asking him to do when she reveals that he's the chosen one, chosen to find this stolen he's golden He's just doing child. what he
0: does this whole film, which is mocks her and kind of makes fun of her, says she needs to makes seek. fun of her faith. Yeah, you need to seek mental health. She shows an ancient scroll and he says it looks like a giant joint, like all this kind you know, avoid <laughs> the Rastafarians. Are, these I
1: mean, the, are bit parts that you can tell were just Yeah, they're just ad
0: lib. You know, Eddie Murphy. Mm -hmm. Some of them stick. Some of them are really funny, actually. Some of them are not. But yeah, that's the other main character. And before we go into the big adventure, though, he kind of gives her the cold shoulder because he's on a case right now. That's Mm -hmm. what we're following is he's looking for a a missing teen and he tracks down this biker gang classic, like 80s. Well, I mean, this is a little late now because it's not 70s anymore, but kind of in Hell's Hell's Angels type. Biker little game. spillover yeah that kidnaps you know sex trafficking or whatever like mm-hmm. that And he goes to this grungy house which i had this was very vivid in my memory as a child yes. watching this so he goes in there and he's finding out that they've held this this girl captive and he finds some weird blood oatmeal that has a sub story about needing to feed the golden child oh blood.
1: yeah we should probably go back too because we haven't clarified why he's looking for the golden child or yeah, sure. why we he's been asked. Okay. So way back in Tibet, there's this little tiny Buddha baby, uh, who was played actually by a, uh, girl named J L Riate or Rayat. I don't know, but she's a girl. She plays the golden child. Who's a boy. I don't know why she couldn't be a girl. Anyway, she's abducted by some devils and the lead devil, uh, Sardo Numsa, he's like a demon, he uh, he speaks to the devil at one point. I think it's the devil, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
1: The devil's voice? Oh,
0: yeah. Well, he, like, breaks away into hell yeah. to have a little side chat. Casually. Yeah. Like a little Zoom conference with, uh, <laughs> with, with uh, Satan.
1: Yes. And it's that voice, actually, that I'm reeling us back towards.
0: It's the voice of, like, Inspector Gadget voice, for sure. What?
1: I have this week's fun fact.
0: Oh, yeah? Am I right?
1: Yes! (laughs) Ah! Yeah! You crapped on my fun fact.
0: (laughs) No, it's just that that's what it sounds like.
1: It is? Yes, it's (laughs) Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget and Shao Kahn from Mortal Kombat. Who does it? His name is Frank Welker. That's Scooby-Doo. Is that Scooby-Doo? Yeah. Are you sure? Of course.
0: Oh, yeah. 100, 100 200% sure.
1: Okay. He also does a bunch of other stuff. I yeah, know, he but...
0: does. He's like Mr. Voice.
1: Okay, of well. Of course it's him. I didn't find him as the voice from Aladdin, though I haven't given up hope because <laughs> I, I feel like it's the voice of the tiger thing from the Cave of Mysteries from Aladdin. Anyway. Hold on. Know this. Only one may here. One whose lies far within the diamond in the
0: rough. Okay. Because. Okay. Because I love
1: you. You do.
0: I looked up his IMDb that includes... 859 credits.
1: That's too many.
0: Would you like to know what he did? On Aladdin.
1: What? What did he do?
0: Cave of Wonders. Yes! Would you like to know what else he did? What? Raja.
1: Don't tell me he did Jafar.
0: And Abu. (gasps) No! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh. 850 Well, it's because he
1: does like Abu. That's just like. He does
0: everything. He did Rezar and Toka from uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, too, also.
1: Okay. So.
0: Holy cow.
1: He also does the devil voice in this movie. I feel like we're <laughs> going off the rails here. Nah. Okay. So he has sent his demon, Sardo Numza, to capture and kill. The golden child so that I don't know if he's going to kill him or just corrupt the golden child. I think he has to corrupt him so he can kill him. Yeah,
0: no, because he has to drink, like, he has to have some sort of... um,
1: Like defile his body. Yeah,
0: and then he can be killed.
1: Okay, so Sardo Numsa, who is played by Charles Dance, a British actor with 152 credits to his name, you can go look that up, but you've probably most recently seen him as Tywin Lannister from Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, there we go. Okay, so he's the demon. He's like our big bad guy. Back to our, I don't know, biker cave? (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) Chandler is there and he finds the dead body of the girl Mm -hmm. that he has been looking for. And he presumes it's probably her blood in this weird oatmeal that he finds. And there's all these like weird symbols and signs on the wall. Golden dragons. Yeah. One thing... (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: <laughs> One thing leads to the next, and he ends up connecting with Keenang Nang and taking on this case. Yes. And he becomes slowly convinced through uh, her beauty and seduction techniques, plus these weird events keep happening to him that kind of lead him to believe that he's maybe maybe like. Uh, in for something more than he originally thought
0: and where he starts to kind of believe is that he has a vision one night he has a dream yes. where he's vid- visited by noomspa and he has his goons with him who we have to also discuss oh. oh yeah he's got two goons in particular till who's played by randall cobb did you know did you recognize him at all yeah no.
1: well i recognized him but what's he from
0: what you know him from raising arizona I know him from Raw Nerve, a David A. Pryor film. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then our big one, our, our very special one, who I think maybe should also be elevated to Laser Grave's Hall of Fame, would be Ponsmar. Oh, Yeah. He was in Return to Oz as the head wheeler. Yes. So he plays Fu. He was also in like Master of the Universe and all kinds of cool stuff. But I really like him. I think he's just such a crazy, weird, eccentric person.
1: He sounds Dutch. Is he Dutch? (laughs)
0: That sounds Dutch.
1: Let's just assume he's Dutch. I don't care. He's at home and he's screaming and he's like, no, I'm American. Okay. Okay.
0: Anyway, that's the kind of goon squad that that follows around, uh, you know, the demons.
1: Yeah. And we should also note that, uh, as we said earlier, John Carpenter directed Big Trouble in Little China, which was competing with this. Three actors from this movie, including Victor Wong, James Hong, and Peter Kwong, all starred in Big Trouble in Little China. So they had two blockbusters in their year.
0: Yeah, just a little refresher for you guys. So James Hong in this plays, this is a crazy name, Dr. Hong. Woo! Yeah. He's kind of the the guy who's helping guide Eddie Murphy's character. Mm -hmm. Uh, He plays Lo Pan in... In Big Trouble. Oh, yeah. And then Victor Wong, who is one of my favorite characters in The Golden Child, oh,
1: gosh. <laughs>
0: plays the old man who's on the street selling stuff. But he's also the father of our lead. And he plays Egg Shen in Big Trouble in Little China. Mm-hmm. He's amazing in both films. Like yeah. This guy is so funny. And then Peter Kwong is Tommy Tong in this one, who gets killed in the alleyway,
1: uh-huh.
0: but plays... I think probably my favorite character in Big Trouble in Little China. He plays Rain of the three elements. He's the
1: one that's like Raiden, right?
0: No, Raiden's the one with the lightning.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: He's the one that is too cool for school with the long hair. That as a kid, I thought was like the epitome of cool. Is
1: that why you grew your hair long?
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Okay. (laughs) I knew it. He's so cool. Anyway, yeah, that strange connection to... Big trouble, which I thought, oh, maybe this is all connected. But it wasn't. It's just people working in Hollywood. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think also that we have to talk about uh, actors who are of a certain ethnicity. Yeah, just There's getting probably cast, yeah. a limited and narrow group for them to choose from at that point in time. Oh,
0: yeah. 100%. Yeah. This is where we get to a scene, which uh, I'm going to be totally upfront is a huge part of why I loved this movie growing up is because there's a music video on TV, which you made me so happy when it started playing. I said, uh, who's
1: this? Yes.
0: And you said rat like without any hesitation.
1: (laughs) Yes. So, um, for you listeners who don't know us, um, Eric is an old school. He'll, he'll say like rocker, but I call him a butt rocker and it offends him. Rocker. What do you say?
0: I don't say anything because everybody judges any. You get mad when
1: I call you a butt rocker though.
0: Because I'm not a butt rocker. That's the thing. Okay. We need to talk about that with Rat real quick. Because Rat Rat kind of is in this gray category where their music is really, really good, but their look and their their kind of image is more kind of chick metal in a way okay I don't know this might be blasphemous and I'll get a lot of feedback but I don't think so rat was one of those weird groups that just kind of was somewhere in the middle they weren't quite like poison or Britney Fox but they definitely weren't you know priest and maiden and Aussie and, and stuff they were just somewhere in there and I always liked rat even though I didn't want to like admit I like rat but I I think they're awesome and this <laughs> song body talk was awesome and the music video is playing. So, of course, I I love this. Because I was like, wait, what? Rats on TV? This is so cool. Keep in mind, when this came out, you know, I was six years old. So, I probably saw this when I was seven or eight. This was the prime time for me to be like, this movie is awesome. There's devils and there's rock music. You know, true. So, I, I was, I was uh, the target audience for sure.
1: So, uh, after the biker situation... It, it becomes clear to Chandler that he needs to hook up with Keenong, and he eventually uh, hooks up with her yeah. in, in a way that doesn't actually make sense. But after trying a couple times, he gets her to go up to his apartment, and they have a lovely evening, apparently. So much so that the next day, she convinces him to go with her to Tibet yeah. to get a knife.
0: Or a dagger, I guess. That's when we first get to meet Victor Wong on the street, who's like this street haggler trying to sell him a necklace. In Kathmandu. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes. Speaking of which, the location of this, some of this was shot in Tibet, but that's all like second unit stuff. The rest was all soundstage.
1: The reels of like distant shots Mm -hmm. and stuff. Mm -hmm.
0: But Victor Wong's character in this is so funny because he's just haggling and stealing from him he later turns out to have a much bigger role but it's funny so he then goes eddie murphy goes with keenan and they go to this temple to try and find this mystical dagger the dagger that can have special powers and destroy the devil Mm -hmm. and they go there and this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie so we'll slow down and and just talk about it because okay she's going to talk to this lead monk or whoever's there who ends up being the street hustler. We later find out is her father. Mm -hmm. But Eddie Murphy's like, hey, that's the guy who ripped me off. And he's there and she has to spin this golden wheel kind of thing. And she spins it and then asks for the dagger. Mm -hmm. And then it's a funny scene because then he turns and he says, make him do it. And Eddie Murphy being Eddie Murphy, I think this is probably one of the funniest scenes in the movie. Is instead of just spinning it and also asking, he in his character has to be this jerk that's mocking everybody, and we get we get this.
1: I humbly beg you, let us have the knife. Let him ask it. I said, I I I I I, I want the knife.
0: Which, as a child, I thought was so incredibly funny. As a child?
1: Or were you I still laugh. No, yeah, I still do laugh. While we watched it with ourselves, yes. So
0: when we get criticism of this not being a very funny movie, I would push back and say there are some funny scenes. I just don't think it's over-the-top funny. It's just humorous at times. Yeah,
1: know. well, it's not like a showcase of Eddie Murphy, although I would argue that they could have done, a, like, dialed it down a little bit on Eddie Murphy. Uh, it's, it seems like they weren't quite sure what they wanted exactly. to do. That's, yeah. yeah,
0: I would say that's true. Because he also has a, another great scene before he's about to... So he gets permission to go after the dagger, but he has to go through these trials and tribulations to get it. There's a scene right after he gets it. Do you want to talk about how he gets it? I guess we can.
1: Well, he just has to walk on some posts over uh, like endless abyss, I guess.
0: And not spill a drop of water even though he Clearly does.
1: Yeah, why did they not edit out very clear droplets of water falling?
0: I don't know. And then he gets to the dagger that's supposed to be levitating in the fire, but you can see the strings holding it. Yeah. That's great. Also, why
1: didn't he just drink the water? He could have just held it inside of his body the whole time. And then
0: just hopped over everything? Yeah. Well, I don't know. We wouldn't have gotten that cool scene.
1: I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're, like, getting you're dealing with like the spiritual realm maybe you're worried about their roles over your own. We also
0: had to see that he's a he's a problem solver in the moment. Was he? Yeah. Okay. Following this scene is one of my other probably the funniest the the one that I laughed hard at every single time. Uh-huh. Which is so he's got the dagger, it's evening, he's mm-hmm. looking over at his love interest and he's talking to her father, the old old man, the old mm-hmm. monk asking for advice and as as the old man is talking, this is Victor Wong he's like picking his nose and then he's wiping his booger on his shirt and Eddie Murphy's like, oh you're just gonna, you're gonna wipe it there? Uh-huh. And then as he's walking away Eddie Murphy says this.
1: Get that booger off your jacket before it, frees up, and scratch yourself.
0: Which this is where I think Eddie Murphy was like really showcasing just Just natural humor,
1: right? Because nobody wants to get scratched by a frozen booger.
0: Nobody. It's very funny.
1: (laughs) It's just
0: conscientious.
1: (laughs) So they get the dagger. They get all the way back uh, to LA or wherever it is they are, and now they're ready to rescue little baby golden child wherever he she may be.
0: What are your thoughts on the golden child, the actual golden child?
1: I'm cool with golden child.
0: Yeah. There's I,
1: no words, so the kid can't overact that much. Uh,
0: the kid is kept in this weird clamp cage, which is really funny. It's like yeah. basically the equivalent of when you put in 50 cents in one of those crane machines. The claw machine, yeah. Yeah, and try and grab a stuffed animal, but instead it brings up a golden child just sitting mm-hmm. there eating leaves. That's what you're getting in this film.
1: Part of me, like the parent side of me was like, it's a pretty rad timeout.
0: It is a pretty rad timeout.
1: But yeah, so Golden Child has to be surrounded by evil. Yes. If Golden Child touches you, you're instantly a, a helper of good.
0: Yeah. Speaking of which. What? Talking about cool tricks. Cool so tricks. So there's going to be a little shout out to our friends and fellow podcast Neon Brainiacs. Is what, uh, something they do every week is kind of a kill count. Okay. And they'll go through and discuss all the creative ways that people were killed in the movie. Uh-huh. So as an homage to them, our friends, I thought it'd be funny to instead do like a cool tricks count oh. <laughs> of all the various cool tricks that the golden child has. Okay. Uh, here's what I came up with. <laughs> he can keep in mind as a female actress, but it's supposed to be a boy. He can uh, bring things back to life mm-hmm. because he brings back a parrot at one point, And then later at the end of the movie, our lead actress.
1: And butterflies.
0: Oh, Butterfly, is true. You're welcome. He can control you. So if he touches you, you're now his servant and, and he can like have control over your mind.
1: No, he's not controlling. He turns you good so that you want to help him.
0: Okay, but he's still controlling your thoughts. Like you wouldn't have done that without him touching you.
1: No, because this, I think that people are inherently good and we become. Dad through life experiences. Okay. So, Golden Child just brings out our nature.
0: Okay, so that one's got a little asterisk next to okay. it to be determined. Okay. Telekinesis. Yep. Because he can make anything and everything levitate, which he does not utilize very often.
1: Well, he can't when surrounded by pure evil.
0: Right. But he can when he's good, he can do things like um, buckle your seatbelt with his mind.
1: Yeah, because he wasn't surrounded on all four sides. By evil,
0: he's got another cool one, astral projection. <laughs> Talk about cool Im-
1: effects. Imagine
0: him like interrupting appointment with fear. That would oh, be pretty cool. That would
1: be awesome. Nice reference. Go listen to that episode.
0: He's got another cool one where he can uh, start cars, mm-hmm. uh, and then probably my favorite one of all time. Okay, he can take a uh, soda can break it down, and reconstruct it into a tap dancing soda can to Sp- put in on the Ritz.
1: Sponsored by Pepsi. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm going to sidestep here and tell you a little interesting story about my childhood. Oh, okay. To talk about my youth and how young I saw this. So okay. I was already very familiar and, and a big fan of this. When I got to try out for band in sixth grade in elementary, um, I, I tried out for percussion I got it. And then in seventh grade, I went to high school. Good job. Congrats. Thank you. That would stick with me for a long time. (laughs) In seventh grade, we had to try out to see who was going to be what chair and stuff like that. Rude. And the song that we had to play on xylophone. (gasps) Putting
1: on the wrist. Putting on
0: the wrist. Yes. And I looked over at my instructor and I was like, it's the Golden Child song. And that's what I thought it was. I didn't realize... It was like an Irving Berlin song until I had to play it. But it, for Aww. me it was The Golden Child song.
1: That's really sweet.
0: And I'm going to just I'm just going to sprinkle in this fun fact.
1: Did you get first chair? I got first chair. Put the feather in your cap and <laughs> leave it there for 30 years.
0: 7th grade beat down. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, oh so gosh. yeah, those are the golden child's cool tricks.
1: Okay, so uh, where are we at? Okay, they came back. They've got their dagger. They're ready to stab uh, Sardo Numza with said dagger. They're they're like prepped. They're yeah. gearing up. They're it's like hype time they gotta get ready they go to a really (laughs) fancy house
0: earbuds in and they're listening to an outdated Eminem song or like I
1: have the tiger I don't know (laughs) that has been playing like on repeat while I'm at the gym it's so I have the tiger has so much if it ain't broke I it's true yeah I'm I'm definitely like yeah okay Anywho, so they're prepping for Sardo-Nimsa. He is wearing, he's got the dagger and some briefcase that he's handcuffed to himself, which is entirely ineffective. Oh, yeah, that had no purpose. I mean, if anything, it it was a cumbersome artifact that he had to carry with him. He should have just held the dagger.
0: But he gets it taken away because Till and Fu come over and Mm -hmm. they steal it from him. Yep. And they, they, uh... Do some more damage in the process.
1: Yeah, they shoot Keenang with a crossbow, which if you go online, there's like a full situation happening where people are like, well, if you didn't know the trajectory of a crossbow in the weight. No way. She probably wouldn't have died so quickly unless, and this is highly unlikely, she got hit directly (laughs) in her heart, in which case she probably wouldn't have had time to deliver her final words.
0: You know, that's the same person who is monitoring and editing Wikipedia entries.
1: Oh my gosh, that guy is going to like spam us with hate mail now.
0: Totally, because he's only watching anime on Laserdisc. Oh. I know that guy. She does die, though, after doing some cool backflips.
1: She does so many underwear backflips. And they're like... Interestingly, she looks pretty hot while she does this, Mm -hmm. and in, like, 1990s, she was voted, I don't know, some magazine somewhere's best bods of the 90s, so...
0: Sure, she's in just a giant t-shirt and underwear doing backflips.
1: Congrats, uh, Charlotte Lewis. (laughs) Who were the best bods of the males at this time? I suspect, without doing any research, that it was only ladies on this best bods list, so... (laughs) Giant middle finger to the 90s. Anyway... Let's go back. She's dead, and she's on what is essentially a folding table in a basement with gauze over her.
0: Oh, I thought it was (laughs) cheesecloth.
1: Yes, it is cheesecloth. Okay. She's covered in (laughs) cheesecloth. They're going to wrap her up and just, like, squeeze the moisture out of her and make her into a wheel of cheese. We
0: failed to mention, which is a bummer because we're trying really hard not to just get bogged down, but (laughs) she's in the area originally where she's being kept is... With this other character. Oh, the librarian. The librarian who is a topless serpent woman from like a Ray Harryhausen character.
1: Look, if you are half snake, who can be bothered with a bra?
0: She when the when it's revealed, when Eddie Murphy just kicks down the screen mm-hmm. and she's just sitting there, it's so Harryhausen, but this is a good spot to kind of stop and talk about the effects of this film. Mm-hmm. Because what we're going to see really quickly is he gets the dagger back. He's going to avenge her death and go after the devil
1: and get. Well, Sardo says is not a devil. I think he's just the demon.
0: Yeah, he is a demon. He's like the the second hand man, and he's going to his whole mission is to kill the golden child. Mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy gets the golden child. They go after him, and this is where we see um, him. We see Noomspa like break down into. A devil. Yep. And it's full stop motion animation. So
1: cool. It
0: is so cool. However, there's something kind of different about it. And I, I just, I was wondering your thoughts on if this was just standard, like, yep, stop motion or if, or if it stood out or anything It seemed like that. more
1: like claymation. Like the character itself looked to be made of clay just by coloring mm-hmm. and the texture of it. Uh, Not so much the snake lady, but Sardonumsa as a demon looked more like actual clay to me, when usually they seem almost like little puppets with a wire form underneath.
0: Yeah. I think that there are parts in this film. Okay, I'm a huge sucker for stop motion animation. Sure. So that's another reason why I like this. But there are parts of this film where it really works, parts that it doesn't. This was actually a new technology. This was experimental at the time. This was a transitional period from practical to digital. Yeah. A lot of this was captured on floppy disk. And then...
1: (laughs) 900 floppy disks. Oh, my
0: gosh. Could you imagine? The technology was originally kind of speculated on the set of Roger Rabbit. Oh, yeah. This is the same group of people. And they said, let's just try it out on the golden child. Let's just go all in and see what happens. Why not? So this was the guinea pig was this type of technology yeah. that later became like a, a big deal. But there are parts, you know, when he's just a demon walking around, it's it's pretty old school. Mm-hmm. But when he's flying in the air behind the car, that looks really good. I, crashing through the ground, all that stuff. Like... So it's kind of a mixed bag, but I think that if you're just having fun watching this film.
1: Oh yeah, it's not realistic. No, but
0: it's just <laughs> on any level. It's so cool to have an old-fashioned stop motion yeah, demon coming at you.
1: It's cool, but it doesn't look real.
0: No, but the battle kind of reminds me of the classic Harryhausen skeletons with the with the swords, yeah. you know, it's or you which was an homage to that, the army of darkness skeletons with swords. It just yeah. has that kind of Similar vibe, so yeah, I, get I that. love that part of this film.
1: Yeah, so Sardo is coming after the golden child, and uh, Chandler is trying to get the golden child to Ki-Nang before the sun sets, because apparently, if after the sun sets on her body, she's dead forever. So he gets to this basement where she's covered in cheesecloth, and the the golden child lifts her toe up into the last ray of sunlight and brings her back to life. Meanwhile, Eddie Murphy has dealt with Sarto Numza and killed him via the sword that he has brought back from Tibet.
0: I have a question about the whole bringing back to life. Uh huh. The Golden Child brings the butterflies back to life, and there's no direct sunlight.
1: Yeah, I don't
0: know. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna call it. I when I was reading one of the critics' reviews, they mm-hmm. brought up a very good observation that I didn't even give two thoughts about. I think it was Roger Ebert that did it. Mm-hmm. Is that the parrot? That we didn't t- talk about, but there's like this parrot that he brings back at the very beginning and it be kind of becomes like the a guide. guide. That parrot, we don't even give this two thoughts, crosses the ocean or to Tibet and back to America mm-hmm. like a couple times in this film.
1: No, he just hops on a flight. You think? Probably. Also, we have not <laughs> talked about those planes. Oh Whoa. whoa yeah. And I love watching eighties movies with planes because you see two things. One, the seats are so much bigger and so much cosier. But also there was smoking on planes and enormous meals.
0: It was just covered in smoke. Could you oh. imagine being in this tiny capsule?
1: No. Just
0: sitting in a giant cigarette. Oh, man, I'm glad those times have changed.
1: I actually, you know, when Eddie Murphy is singing with those headphones on, Mm -hmm. he at one point sings Eddie Murphy is a cool man. (laughs) Really? Yeah. It's like the third line of gibberish.
0: It's a pretty funny scene. Well, needless to say, Eddie Murphy gets the dagger.
1: And the girl.
0: Stabs the devil or the the demon, kills him. It's all a happy ending. It's really fun. It's a super fun ending.
1: It's just what you knew would happen from, like, the first instant. Yeah, there's no
0: surprises. It was a fun film. The way it was received, I guess we should probably discuss that, because that's part of the the legacy of Golden Child. So this was released December 12th, 1986. This was a good five, six months after Big Trouble in Little China.
1: So there are, like, Big Trouble in Little China was doing the summer blockbuster... Trying. ...try, (laughs) and... The this was hoping for a you know winter break kind of yeah, situation. Yeah,
0: exactly because they were very similar films. This one cost twenty five million to make. It made seventy nine almost eighty million dollars. So it's very successful. Well, on paper you would think so. The problem is this was a flop in Paramount's eyes because Beverly Hills Cop had made two hundred eighty whatever million. Um, so it was like. Apparently this is a failure. Okay.
1: okay. we o- We only made 50 something million.
0: Keep in mind, John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China only made 11 million. Oof. This is interesting considering the legacy of the two films because they're always going to get compared because they came yeah. out the same year. They have this whole Eastern mysticism thing. Yeah. It's interesting to me that one film made 80 million. The other made 11 million and it is, doesn't take a genius to figure out which one actually had the staying power Mm -hmm. and the cult status. Like, which one had Kurt Russell? (laughs) That's totally Mm -hmm. it right there. It's the Kurt Russell factor. What did we just watch the other night that had him? It was the... Oh, Bone Tomahawk.
1: Yeah, I I wanted to call it Jawbone.
0: He is just too cool for school. He's
1: a silver fox.
0: Yeah, he's awesome. He's awesome in that film. That film was made on, like, $1 million budget, too. Don't Don't even get me started on that. Okay. Anyway, so it comes out. It splits critics, as we mentioned. Like, this is not the Eddie Murphy everybody thought we were Mm -hmm. getting.
1: But it's also not enough of a break from Eddie Murphy for people to be like, oh, he's doing something totally different.
0: Yep. We talked about this before, that our two leads um, dissed on it. You know, Eddie Murphy and Mm -hmm. our, our lead devil there, Uh, Charles dance he
1: he actually said I have a quote from him about it from Charles yes so he said they had gotten to know him him being uh Eddie Murphy so well through Beverly Hills Cop that they wanted the character to be much more like that so the studio went back went back and reshot a lot of the footage of Eddie doing Eddie Murphy isms and then put them into the picture And then they took out a really sumptuous, weird, and beautiful score and replaced it with something more funky. So basically, you got was Beverly Hills Cop in Tibet.
0: You know what? That is very on point because it's true. Let's slow slow down and, and talk about the score, which we didn't even discuss. Yeah. That does have kind of a Beverly Hills cop vibe to it.
1: It's like a little funky funky break every now and again. Yep.
0: So originally this was supposed to go to Alan Silvestri, who did Back to the Future and all that. Mm-hmm. He passed on it. And then it went to John Barry, legendary composer. He's done what, dances with wolves and all this stuff. I actually have a uh, sore spot in my mind with with John Barry because as a composer, I've had his his work sent to me. Oh, as examples and can being you like, do
1: this on like yeah, a zero budget? Yeah, can you do
0: this? And I'm like, I can't, it's John Barry. But anyway, John Barry scored it. And then test audiences heard it and was like, no, this isn't really sitting well. We need this to be cool and hip. So another composer, Michael Colombier, who came in and did this synth score, which it gets this Beverly Hills Cop more vibe to it,
1: uh-huh.
0: he's the one that ends up getting brought on then after the fact. And then you get this weird merging of both of their scores as the final product, in addition to the soundtrack with bands like Rat. Yeah. It's very weird. It reminded me a lot of of a previous episode, Legend, where Jerry Goldsmith had done the entire score. Mm -hmm. And then they decided, I think it was Ridley Scott or somebody said, oh, this isn't the right vibe. We need this to be cooler. And that's when Tangerine Dream came in and basically replaced... All of Jerry's score. So it's a similar situation where when you have big studios, and this was very last minute to switch yeah. out the score.
1: It's too many cooks in the kitchen. Way
0: too many cooks in the kitchen, which just adds to the kind of mess that happens. You know who else had a, a problem with this film? Who? The writer, David Feldman.
1: Oh, <laughs> because he had written something very totally different. Totally
0: different. He called this a nightmare.
1: Aww. He said
0: they took he took this, his script Found out Eddie Murphy was going to be in it and tried to make it an Eddie Murphy movie. Yeah. And so he was extremely disappointed. That would be
1: the, devastating. Yeah, I
0: can't even imagine. But there you go. I mean, that's, we've already talked about it. Take it or leave it. This is what the golden child is. I think a lot of people put this into that realm of forgettable blockbusters that mm. were like massive successes that nobody really
1: remembers very well. Okay. I hope that it's like for everybody involved, for the writer, for the actors, that it's a little bit of a wor- worst witch thing where it finds its legs 20 years later. And you yeah. go, oh, OK, I see what we were doing there. I don't I you know, it wasn't maybe what I had in mind, but I see its value in the long term.
0: I think it's great. I think there. my two warnings going into it, if you haven't seen it, is A, it's not Beverly Hills Cops. Don't expect that version of eddie and it's murphy
1: not big trouble in little and china yeah
0: exactly and it's not big trouble in little china if you know those two things going in it's just a fun film mm-hmm. why i liked it is because i liked big trouble in little china so this was kind of another version of that it just was fun it mm-hmm. had stop motion animation adventure comedy i mean it was all there so, so if
1: you like those two things you put your hands together you get golden child and you're happy
0: yeah and if you do it slowly you get a slow clap All right, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Laser Graves approved? Of course. Of course. All right. That is it for this week. Um, I don't know what we're doing next week. No, we're going to do Heathers, right?
1: Probably, yeah.
0: Sorry, this was a little deviation, but we'll do it next week.
1: Yeah, we had to do it. We owed it to you. Also, don't forget, if you haven't and you're listening to it on Election Day, get out there and vote for somebody who isn't a racist. (laughs)
0: Okay, and uh, if you want to follow what we're doing, we're on Instagram at Lasergraves. You can find us anywhere you get podcasts, or you can follow us at uh, lasergraves.com and, and stream us there.
1: Don't forget to sign up for Patreon. We're
0: at patreon.com slash lasergraves. If you want to follow our personal sites... I'm at Death at 33 RPM.
1: I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer.
0: As always, go listen to our fellow podcasters, which we will put in our stories throughout the week. you got to support them. And we thank everyone for listening. For those longtime listeners, uh, thanks for sticking with us for the Golden Child. I hope, I hope this made your day, especially on today. Okay. Uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.